I'm Danielle Houston. I'm the host of this podcast, The Checkup. I'm also a health and welfare advisor at Locked In Companies, and we are recording a special edition of The Checkup today so that we can host Zach Snyder, who will provide for us a sort of midpoint legislative update because Washington DC is not the only Washington and our state is in the midst of a long session this year. It's 105 days and we're at, oh, Zach says we have about five weeks left. If you have been listening or following the checkup for a while, then you've heard Zach's updates. He is the director of Government Affairs for Cambia, a regular guest. Zach, I don't feel like I have to over-introduce you anymore. You're almost like a co-host sometimes. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having (laughs) me back. I'm excited to talk about what's left in the uh, legislative session. There's a lot, and I think we should just jump into it. Um, You broke this down for us so that we kind of have a little bit of some organization around what's going on. So a little bit of the overview, we've got about five weeks left in the session. Um, (laughs) COVID, what's new in this session? You know, what's been different about 2021? Well, one major difference this year than we've seen in all other years is that this is a virtual session. So the legislature is meeting in a so-called Zoom session. The public, lobbyists, anyone really, uh, they're barred from actually going to the Capitol. And many of the legislators, they're not there either. The leadership is, most of the legislators are at home doing committee hearings, taking votes, all, all from Zoom. So that really changes the dynamic Uh, in Olympia. And despite assurances that legislators would stick to only the most essential legislation because they had to do this Zoom session, uh, we're seeing major tax and major healthcare legislation uh, being proposed this year. And a couple of those have gotten a lot of attention. And I know we're going to get to those. And some of this is a bit of a refresh because we have talked about this in some previous episodes. This projected shortfall that we were going to have in our state, what happened to that? One of the last times we talked, we said that there was going to be an almost $9 billion deficit in our state revenue collections over a four-year period or through 2023. Just today, the state economic and revenue forecast came out. And that has been totally revised. We are now projecting a $3.2 billion surplus over that same time period. And, you know, for folks who maybe didn't listen to any of the prior updates, that was directly connected to home sales, online shopping, and a lot of weed, right? I think those were the three areas that we made up for where we lacked in other areas. Yeah, that's true. There's also increased sin taxes as well. Alcohol sales are up. Tobacco sales are up. We're seeing this in states all over the country. Many states projected a deficit. Now many states are seeing a surplus because of stronger than expected sales. Home sales are a particular piece that have really boosted state revenue collections. The real estate excise tax 
has brought in over 180 million more than we initially thought wow. because of extremely strong home sales in the Puget Sound area. In addition, we, or, or the state rather, recently revised the real estate excise tax. It used to be a flat tax. Now it's it's smaller for homes under 500,000 and it's larger for homes over 500,000. And if you've read, you know, any headlines lately, you you'll know that in the Puget Sound region most homes are over 500,000. Right. So or that I would has say many out. of them are. Yeah. Yes, that's worked out very well then in our state. Mm-hmm. And so it is, you know, I'll let a little of my my bias show here then despite some news then that you know we're bringing in more revenue we don't have a shortfall there's some troubling then news around looking at these new taxes and new ways to collect new revenue in spite of the fact that uh, we don't have a shortfall and you know, some of these in particular will be very impactful to employer-sponsored health plans if they are moved forward. There's big taxes this year, despite these better than uh, projected uh, revenue numbers that, that we have coming in. The first, this doesn't really relate to employer-sponsored healthcare, but it's important to understand is a capital gains tax that is moving through the process right now, it it passed the Senate, it now went over to the House. And what this tax would do is it would levy a tax on capital gains earned over $250,000 a year, which is a a very large amount. It would only impact 8,000 people in the state of Washington, but it's projected to raise 500 million or more per year. So that's a billion dollars per biennium. Uh, which is a pretty big uh, tax and, and a big part of the overall budget. We expect that this tax will, if it does pass, and, and I think that it will, that it will go to a referendum. And if it passes that, if it eventually becomes law, then it will probably be challenged in court. Uh, so the courts may have the final say on this tax. But it's important to understand that the legislature is moving this legislation through. So it may make it more difficult for them to embrace some of the other taxes that we're going to talk about, particularly the taxes that uh, seek to impact employer-sponsored coverage. And, you know, can you maybe for a moment explain what some of these predicted next steps are if that capital gains tax does move forward There is some talk that it's really just the beginning of paving the way for a state income tax. Is that true from your perspective? There are certainly people that will make that argument. The proponents of this legislation, they characterize this tax as an excise tax. Excise taxes are permitted uh, in our state, and uh, they say it's an excise tax because it's a tax on a transaction like the real estate excise tax that I just described, that is a permissible tax that you can put at different amounts uh, because you're, you're taxing the sale of a home. They say this is a tax on the sale of an asset of a capital gain, or excuse me, of a security, then you receive a capital gain from that, and, and it's a tax on that. Our state constitution uh, prohibits um, taxes, at least a progressive tax on income. Uh, our, our state constitution says that property 
uh, needs to be taxed in an even way, and you can't place more than a 1% tax on property. So uh, that's been interpreted to mean you can't impose a federal progressive style income tax in the state. So the proponents of this tax believe that if they can get uh, the citizens of the state of Washington to approve it through a referendum and the courts to uphold this capital gains tax, that they could create some precedent in our courts that would allow them to pass perhaps an income tax in future years, which our courts have rejected in the past, going back to the 1930s. Okay. So, I mean, there, there could be a slope that leads that direction. Okay. The next one is the covered lives tax. And we've talked about this one. This has been on your, you know, list of things to watch now for a while. You knew it was coming. Where are we on that? We have a covered lives tax. It started out as a $3.25 per person per month tax in all lines of business. So this includes self-funded employer-sponsored coverage, uh, union coverage, coverage provided to individuals through tribal organizations, things of that nature. So this really reaches in and taxes all covered lives in the state to fund public health services or what they call foundational public health services. This foundational public health services legislation was passed several years ago. And what it did is it created an account to pay for certain public health things like uh, maternal and child health, vital statistics, uh, things of that nature. But with the uh, pandemic, the public health uh, folks have really used this as an opportunity to go out and try and get funding for this legislation. And they've decided to do that through a covered lives tax. And we've seen a very strong response to this, particularly from the business community. Uh, so thanks to the business community to coming out and speaking up about how this will impact the cost of healthcare. Unions have done a great job of weighing in on this legislation and others. Uh, former state Supreme Court Justice Phil Talbidge, he's weighed in and said that this legislation may not be constitutional, legal, or perhaps not even consistent with current state policy um, about how um, health coverage is, is uh, paid for in, in the state. So uh, there's been a strong push against it. The legislation is still sitting in committee. It has not even been voted on by one of the houses. Uh, and you need both houses, both the House and the Senate, in order to move it out. We, we have five weeks left. At this point, most bills that are considered viable have, it, have passed at least one house. Okay. Uh, what makes this legislation different, though, is that it is deemed necessary to implement the budget. And if a piece of legislation is deemed necessary to implement the budget, it can move at any time. So it's not subject to the usual rules about passing one chamber and passing another chamber. So, uh, you know, we're, we're watching it. We're still very concerned about it. And just because it's sitting in committee doesn't mean we should sit back and think that this bill won't pass. So this would be a great time to talk about maybe the, the tool that has been built to make it very easy for voters in Washington state to voice their opposition to this bill. Um, you can sign up to get 
notices and updates on this bill in particular. Can you tell the listeners what that tool is and where they can sign up? Absolutely. So this is Voices for Affordable Healthcare Washington. And this is a group that we've sponsored to uh, really provide information about policies and issues that have a real impact to the cost of healthcare in the state. So really focusing this on people who are concerned about purchasing healthcare. And the, the organization has a tool that will allow you to connect with your legislator via email and send a message about uh, your thoughts on this legislation. And, uh, you know, we can uh, put in the show notes for this uh, show a link to that, but it's called Voices for Affordable Healthcare Washington. And it's a great tool. And we've sent out uh, hundreds of letters or emails to legislators on this issue. And uh, definitely want to thank everyone who has gotten involved in that. Yes, there was a lot of rallying support to oppose this. I testified on behalf of the Washington Association of Health underwriters because, you know, the primary concern for this covered lives tax is that, of course, it impacts the cost of our coverage. And while these taxes are often touted as being paid for by the insurer or that third party administrator, it really does become a pass through cost. And there are already so many taxes that are layered into employer-sponsored health coverage in particular. And I think one thing that we can all agree on, no matter you know, where we come from uh, politically or where we get our healthcare coverage, is that we're all looking for ways to make it more affordable and more accessible, as opposed to heaping more cost onto it. And I would the other piece that I wanted to add in here as well was that, you know, you made the comment that there's been this push or maybe this um, the ability to push it forward a little bit differently since um, it was connected to the pandemic and it highlighted our need for greater public health funding. And I don't think anyone argues that, you know, that we don't need better public health funding. But one of the pieces I found interesting is that while COVID is certainly being used as one of the ways to garner support for the tax, there's nothing in the way any of this was written that would say the monies would be used to help you know, pay for um, the expenses that the public is facing in connection with COVID. And in fact, there's a lot of loose language about where the monies would go period. Um, is that, has there been a change to that piece or would you say that's still accurate? I would say that is an accurate description of where the money goes. The, the tax legislation deposits the money into something called the foundational public health account uh, that would sit in the state treasury. And then when you trace that back to legislation about what this foundational public health account can be used for, it says that, um, it can only be used for certain so-called foundational public health services, which include uh, vital statistics, uh, maternal and child health, uh, oral health care. There's five or six very broad categories that it, that it can be used for, which they call uh, foundational public health services. And in order for those uh, services to even be funded, there's another mechanism before the money can even go out the door it would require the Office of Financial Management, which is the governor's budget office, 
to enter into an agreement with um, the state tribes to decide how the money should be used. So that's an additional mechanism that sits on top of it. Um, and it's, it, it's a unique mechanism in the sense of um, it's one of a kind. I haven't seen it in any other um, state treasury account. So it, it's an interesting way to address public health, um, which obviously does need uh, more help. We've seen that over the pandemic. Uh, they, they say they need $200 million a year for this program. We've seen a budget surplus with $3.3 billion over a four-year period. We've seen $4.2 billion come from the American Rescue Plan signed by the president recently. Um, so there's a variety of ways to, to fund this. You know, in addition, they have a capital gains tax that's coming through. Um, I don't, we, we think that's going to pass, and that is set to raise another $500 million or a billion dollars for the biennium. So when we look at this, we, we see that there's a lot of money coming into the general fund. And if public health is something that needs additional funding, we would like to see that funded through the general fund, through the money that's, that's coming into the state. Agreed. There are a lot of different ways that it could be funded where it's not all coming off the backs of, you know, employees who are paying cost shares and employers who are still struggling to provide healthcare benefits to their employees. Okay. You mentioned the American recovery plan. This is new. Have you read it all? No, (laughs) I have not read the American recovery plan. Uh, But I have read certain sections of it, particularly related to health coverage. There is big news in this legislation related to health coverage. You know, a lot of the um, headlines were on the stimulus checks, rightfully so. But this legislation also expands the Affordable Care Act. It provides $35 billion in additional funding for state subsidies for people who are seeking individual coverage on the exchange. And what it does is it actually um, gets rid of the old eligibility rules. So prior to the American Recovery Act or American Recovery Plan, whatever we're calling it these days, uh, the Affordable Care Act had rules about who was eligible for these uh, subsidies, which are known as tax, you know, advance payable tax credits or APTCs to buy down the premium when you go onto the exchange. And it was based off of your federal poverty level. And so if you were between 135% of federal poverty level and 400% of the federal poverty level, you would receive some amount of subsidy to buy down your premium. Well, the ARP does away with that. And it says that instead of relying on federal poverty level, we would just look at your premium in relation to the monthly um, income that you have. And if, your inc- if the premium is greater than 8.5% of your monthly income, you will receive a, pre- you will receive a uh, credit, a tax credit. And this is set to help far more people than the current system does. And that's why there's a, an additional $35 billion coming to states. Not, $35 billion is not coming to Washington state. That's national numbers. But Washington should receive uh, you know, hundreds of millions of that. Uh, $35 billion pot in order to provide greater assistance to people seeking coverage on the exchange. And this will, this will be a good thing because it will lower the cost for people and it will um, increase health coverage 
in the state. So uh, we are looking forward to putting those funds to work for people in the state. And, you know, just to tag into that as well, there are COBRA subsidies that are really significant that are also attached to the American Recovery Plan. And Locked In is hosting a webinar next week with our internal compliance and employment law attorneys where they will really focus on what those elements mean for employers and and what employers will be required to do. So I'll also make available a registration link to that for people who want to learn more. there was a lot in that plan. I haven't read the whole thing either. I thought, you know, this is one of those examples that I just, I'll just focus on the things that impact healthcare and my clients, the, the rest of it's just too much. Um, let's also talk about Cascade Care. And this might be something that, you know, might not be as much on the forefront of maybe a, a news media run as some of the taxes, but it's definitely impactful. And Washington State does have a public option. It just hasn't had much traction because of the way it was originally designed and and set up with providers, which, you know, is probably the very short version of that story. But legislators are seeking to reform that. So can you fill in our listeners on what that looks like? Uh, Sure. And it is related to the American Recovery Plan as well. So I think that these two pieces of legislation, even though one is enacted by Congress and the other is seeking to uh, get enacted at the state level, um, they are connected. So our public option plan is called Cascade Care in our state. And the way that it works is it directs the healthcare authority, which is the agency that uh, does Medicaid in our state, to contract with a private health plan to offer a benefit package designed by the state on the exchange. But the kicker is that health plan has to um, reimburse providers at 160% of Medicare. And the idea is if if the health plan reimburses at that level, the premiums will be lower. Uh, What we've seen in practice is that the premiums really aren't that much lower. And that mostly has to do with the state design plan really focuses on um, cost sharing, keeping that as low as possible and pushing the the costs over to the premium. And because they've inflated the premium, any cost savings that you would have received from the lower reimbursement, you don't really see. So um, what we see is actually slightly higher premiums in these cascade care plans, but on average, lower cost sharing than some of the, you know, other higher, or excuse me, lower actuarial value plans that, that we see on the exchange. So legislators are seeking to reform this public option plan or cascade care by doing a few things. Number one is they want to create a state-based subsidy program. So we talked about the federal subsidy program that exists with the APTC or the advanced payable tax credits that act as subsidies for individuals to purchase healthcare on the exchange. Uh, We have the addition of the ARP money coming in for that. They want to set up a separate state one that will sit on top of that. So provide even greater subsidies. And so they, they haven't funded it. They're looking for funding. So, you know, another tax they're looking for in order to fund this. Um, And they want those to flow in uh, to the, to the public option plans and, Uh, That's one big thing. Not very many states have done a state-based subsidy program. A few have, 
California has, uh, Massachusetts has, Connecticut, um, and New Jersey. The other thing that this seeks to do, and this is sort of the headline of the legislation, is that it, it would require that hospitals contract with health plans. So before, it was optional. And they're looking at various things. They're looking at maybe saying if a hospital receives any sort of payment from a state-purchased health care, that they have to contract with one of these Cascade Care health plans which would force their hand to come in and accept this lower reimbursement. One of the reasons why we don't see a lot of these cascade care plans across the state is because hospitals and, and doctors and others didn't want to come in and accept, remember what I said, this 160% of Medicare. But, you know, a few, a few were able to, our organization was able to offer one of these plans in, um, in Kittitas County. Uh, but, you know, we are looking at uh, this legislation trying to be uh, uh, trying to be proactive and working with legislators to offer them ideas on how to improve it. Uh, the way that they've designed the bill as is today, we don't think will really increase the availability of these health plans across the state. And anytime I hear someone talk about forcing providers to take a certain discounted amount for services. I mean, part of me wonders, you know, really how, how well is that going to be received by the provider community, especially in a year like this year where they've all been strained and overworked and truly on the, the front lines. And, you know, then on top of that, I guess the next part is, when we take funds away or force these lower discounted rates on a certain subset of plans, what inevitably happens is that they look to make up for those losses on the employer funded health plans when they sit down to contract the new rates on an annual basis with the carriers for those. So the shell game, you know, pushes it from one space, but it inevitably seems to always come back onto those employer sponsored health plans. And so there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. Well, that's, that's the hard part of this is how do you lower the cost of healthcare? That's really the million dollar question here. And hospitals do not want to take any sort of price cut at all here. Um, and well, you know, we understand why, because yeah. of the issues you just, you just brought up. Yeah. An initial version of this legislation would have had their uh, prices at 135% of Medicare. So continue, continuing to push down, the lower you put that reimbursement, the more pressure it puts on the other, the employer market to make up those costs. So one potential solution is to try and figure out what what that average reimbursement cost is in the commercial market or in the employer market and try to match that. So you can't really cost shift. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a little bit of the sweet spot that we're trying to look for if legislators want to pass something like this. So that's one idea that we're looking at. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think any and all ideas that don't keep circling back, 
you know, into the same pot are really great. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, hopefully our legislators will look to experts who design health plans and negotiate with providers as being, you know, important helpers to this process. Because like I said earlier, I do think we all really do want the same thing. Uh, there's just some probably differing paths and how to get there. Um, but we all want healthcare to be more accessible and more affordable. And um, thank you, Zach, for doing your part. And, you know, I can't say you're going to Olympia every day now, but you're probably able to be a little bit more productive since you can log in from the office and participate in Zoom this year for 105 days. I would hope that's the case at least. It's absolutely the case. I'm not on the roads as much as nice? I usually am. So I have, a, I have a lot more time to read all of these bills that <laughs> will have a significant impact on businesses in our state. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you. And thank you for delivering back to us to these overviews that help us understand how it impacts our employer health sponsored coverage and giving us some good ways to know how we can make our voices heard and doing it in a way that we can all understand, even if we aren't politicians and lobbyists. Um, I appreciate your delivery. Thank you. Um, I will hope that at the end of this session or maybe at a time in between, you'll come back and give us an update. Zach is always available to be uh, connected with on LinkedIn, and we will include in the show notes uh, the link as well to the Voices for Affordable Healthcare. And as always, you can reach out to either one of us if you have questions or want to be more involved in this process. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of The Checkup. Take good care.